I'm doing well, Paul. How, how are you doing? Doing great. Great. And we have George Rose, our guest today. George, how are you? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be to be asked to be on your show. Oh, well, thanks Ooh. for being here. I was going to say, we'd like to welcome you to, to the Catholic Sportsman Show. Yeah. I feel welcome. I feel very welcome. Thank you. All right. So we'll get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this time together, for the gift of today. And we ask you to send the Holy Spirit upon our conversation. And um, we ask Our Lady to intercede for us and all our intentions. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of death. Amen. St. Sebastian, patron saint of Christian athletes. Pray for us. Blessed Carlo Cutis, the technical blessed of the Catholic Sportsman Show. Pray for pray us. For us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 All right. So welcome, George. Uh, Tonight, our, our guest, George, he is the executive advisor of the Pacific Rim Operations for the New York Yankees, and he's also the advisor of the Yamuri Giants and Yamuri Shimbun. So welcome again, George. And um, Thanks, Paul. Yeah. So um, looking forward to get started and uh, listening here about your life, and we'll turn it over to Randy. Well, George, we just usually start off by having you share some of your background regarding your life in the intersection between your faith and sports. All right. Well, my as uh, you noted, at th thank you for the question, Randy. And uh, as Paul noted at the uh, beginning, uh, you know, my current uh, uh, career is is with the New York Yankees and also with the O'Neary. Uh, giants and the Yomiri Shimbun, which means Yomiri newspaper in Japanese. And uh, the Yomiri newspaper owns the Yomiri Giants, kind of the way the uh, Chicago Tribune used to own the Cubs uh, before the Ricketts family uh, bought bought uh, bought them. But uh, so I uh, first started working with the Yankees back in 1998, and uh, you know I grew up in New York I, uh, on Long Island. Uh, as a Yankee fan, uh, believe it or not. And if you remember the name uh, Hideki Arabu, he was a pitcher for the Yankees. He came uh, over from Japan in 1997 uh, and, and joined the Yankees in the middle of the season. And he started out really great, uh, his first you know handful of games, and then he ended the season not so great and didn't make the playoff roster. So... Uh, uh, Mr. Steinbrenner at the time uh, fired the uh, translator, who was a Japanese guy, uh, who I became pretty good friends with. But, um, you know, that's kind of when the boss was still in his heyday. And uh, uh, and that was, you know, he he fired him. And I had a, a, a friend. So it was in all the newspapers in New York, in New York at the time that that he got let go. And I had a friend who went to 
Catholic University with uh, Brian Cashman, good friend of mine, Peter Falenza. So Peter uh, called up uh, Brian and said, hey, I, I know a guy who speaks Japanese and I had lived in Japan after college. I went to Holy Cross in uh, Massachusetts. And after college, I moved to Japan and was a, a teacher on uh, the JET program, a Japan exchange and teaching program for a couple of years. So I learned Japanese when I was there and worked for an uh, import-export company in New York for a while. And, and um, I was actually getting uh, an MBA at Columbia uh, at the time, at Columbia Business School. And the Yankees called and I went in for an interview and that was uh, November of 1997. And Brian, believe it or not, was still the assistant GM at the time. So I interviewed with Bob Watson, who, you know, if you guys are baseball fans, I'm sure you know mm -hmm. his name, the great, great baseball player. He was the GM. So I interviewed with him and, uh, and the PR director and with Brian and, um, and then didn't hear anything for a few months. And I stayed in touch with Brian over the winter and he was promoted to GM uh, that winter. Bob Watson resigned. And the following February, I was about a month into my last semester of business school, getting ready to graduate in May. And they called, Brian called and said, hey, this was like a, a Wednesday. And he said, hey, can you go to spring training on Friday? <laughs> oh, wow. And I'd been touching base with them, you know, every, you know, few weeks or once a month. And then he's like, sorry, no update, no update. And then, of course, the way the Yankees operate, it's like, yeah, you know, uh, can you can you leave in two days, uproot and change everything? So uh, so I did. And I went down to spring training for pitchers and catchers. Hideki and I got along pretty well that weekend. And um, and then I basically didn't go back to business school for two years. I took a two year leave of absence and uh, I was with the team during the 1998 and the 1999 seasons, uh, which, you know, if you're, if again, if you're a baseball fan, you know, those were like unbelievable years with the Yankees. That's when the, that dynasty in the late nineties really solidified. We had won the world series in 96, uh, lost to the Indians in 97, uh, famous you know home run that sandy alomar hit off mariano rivera to knock us out of the playoffs mm -hmm. that year um but then uh 1998 we had the most wins in the regular season uh and ever for a team to also win the world series so we had we were 114 and 48 in the regular season and then we had 11, wow. 11 and 2 in the playoffs so our final record was 125 and 50 and uh it was a stupendous time to be with the Yankees in 1998 and especially my first year. And then, uh, in 1999, you know, we won again and, um, it was just, you know, uh, I mean, I had the best job in New York for two years without a doubt. <laughs> oh yeah. So, um, the, 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 uh, after, after that, uh, those two years, um, uh, I went back to business school and I got my MBA. I had one semester left, went and finished that. Worked on Wall Street for a little while, then went into real estate. I uh, was kind of a regular guy in the business world. And if you remember in 2003, uh, the Yankees uh, uh, had uh, signed Hideki Matsui as a free agent. He came from the Yomiri Giants. And they actually offered me the job to be his translator uh, again that year. Um, and when he had his opening press conference with the Yankees, uh, I helped translate that. And 
And uh, it was, you know, very tempting, but I was getting married that summer and I couldn't, you know, I had my own business at the time and I couldn't just pick up and leave everything again. So I actually, unfortunately, had to turn it down. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I always stayed in touch and helped out here and there with things as, as needed. And in, uh, in 2007, uh, the Yankees uh, asked if I could take a trip to uh, Okinawa and we had acquired Kei Igawa that year from the Hanshin Tigers. So I went on a trip with it, with Brian, Randy Levine, the president of the team, um, Gene Afterman, the assistant GM and, and Michael Tusiani, the head of sponsorship uh, for the Yankees. And when I was over there, <clears throat> I thought we were just going for a week and I was going to help out with translating. Uh, but they said, we're thinking of opening an office in Tokyo. Would you be interested? And I was actually at a point then that I could do that. Um, I was kind of getting out of the real estate business and uh, I said, sure. So I went and, you know, talked to my wife. My son was a year and a half old and uh, we chatted about it and she gave me the okay. So we moved to Japan that summer <clears throat> in 2007 and we then uh, stayed uh, until the end. And I opened an office for the Yankees in Tokyo uh, and, and, uh, we were there for three years and it was great. It was awesome. Like, Cause I had lived in Japan on this teaching program uh, about, I guess it was about a 17 year gap. Cause after college, I was there from 1989 to 1991. So, and now it was 2007 and I was moving back. So 16, 17 years later. Uh, and I wasn't, I was up in Fukushima previously, very, rural area of Japan. And now I was living in Tokyo, the big metropolitan city and working for the Yankees. And it was, uh, it was wonderful. I, you know, I love Japan. Uh, I've had a love affair with the country of Japan for gosh, uh, 30 years now. Um, and it's a great country. I love it. I love the people. I love the language. I love the food. Uh, it's, it's the reason I work for the Yankees is because thanks to the jet program and, and thanks to, uh, you know, my, my work with Japan, with the Japanese. So, um, did that for, you know, in Tokyo for a few years. And then I came back, uh, in 2010, uh, to New York and now in the current job that I'm in. So, uh, you know, I'm an executive advisor, Pacific Rim operations, which entails both baseball operations related, scouting related things, and then also, uh, sponsorship sales with Japanese companies. Um, so I kind of get to cross, uh, uh, some different departments. I'm more a country specialist than a function specialist within the Yankees. Um, I always tell people I'm the Yankees Japan guy. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and there's a partnership with the Omiri Giants and, and the Yankees. So I'm kind of the guy in between, you know, the window in between the two organizations that, uh, you know, with exchanges and business and different things that, that happen between the two organizations. So it's kind of in a nutshell, my, my career uh, path and, and how I got there and where we are today. Oh, great. And it's awesome that you're this trusted advisor that they can rely on you. And, and like you said, to interface with Japan, that's awesome. It's pretty cool. It's very, not something I ever thought I would be doing. When, yeah. I, first, when I first moved to Japan in 1989, remember there were no Japanese major leaguers at that point you know, Hideo Nomo came in 1995. So it wasn't even uh, really a thought on the horizon for me. Um, I just wanted to go on an adventure in Japan and try to learn the language and have a cool experience. And then it turned into this. <laughs> wow. It's like, 
when I read about your life, I thought, oh, that's just, just how he uh, designed it with his high school uh, college counselor. This is my life. It's just <laughs> right. it was amazing yeah. where it all ended up. So yeah, there's, for you. there hasn't really been any like five-year plan. You know what I mean? Just right. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just trust God. Exactly. Yeah. Do the next right thing. <laughs> yep. So, um, yeah, so in 1998, um, for that very successful team with the Yankees, you were named as one of the keys, you know, to make it a very successful team. And one of the third three World Series rings that you received. Uh, but you said that one of the best things you did that year was you learned how to listen to Hideki Arabu. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Like, how did you pick that up? And of course, how can Randy and I be better husbands and listen better too? So Exactly. Yeah. Not just you guys. <laughs> Easy to do when it's not your wife, right? Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, to my great surprise, in uh, after the '98 season, I was well, I lived in in Manhattan on the West Side on 54th Street and Eighth Avenue, which is Hell's Kitchen, and I lived there for 10 years. And so, um, and during that time, so I was walking down the street at a newsstand, and I saw Sports Illustrated had the uh, World Series commemorative issue with Scott Brocious holding his arms up after he, he hit a home run. Uh, he was the MVP of the World Series that year. So I said, oh, cool, let me pick this up. So I picked it up and brought it back to my apartment and I'm reading through it. And they had one article is that uh, 10 keys to, to the, to the 98 season uh, to the best team ever. And, um, and I'm reading it. And, and then number seven was interpreting Irabu which was me, you know, they said, Oh, oh wow. it was one of the 10 keys because Hideki had been kind of up and down the year before in 97. And he had a, he had a very good season in, in 98. He was one of the starting five. Uh, he went 11 and nine. His ERA was 4.06. I think he pitched at probably close to 200 innings. You know, he's really contributed really well to the team that year. And, um, and uh, I, you know, he, he, being a good listener was actually because Hideki loved to talk actually. And Japanese isn't my first language either. So it was easy just to listen a lot. Um, and, and he, and he just wanted to be, be, you know, have somebody to talk to. And I, and I was the only person in the clubhouse who understood Japanese other than the writers when they would come in, you know, uh, at different times. But uh, so, you know, when you're a translator, for a player, you know, I, you're, it's like being a married couple in a way. Mm-hmm. And I had a locker in the clubhouse next to uh, Hideki. It was actually in between Hideki and Chuck Knobloch, um, and uh, who was the second baseman on the team. And uh, I traveled with the team everywhere. I mean, I was as close as you could be to being a player on the team without actually being a player. You know, it was, uh, and I had a bird's eye or a front row seat to you know, what's considered the greatest team of all time. And uh, it was awesome. What, what a great experience. What a great group of guys. And um, yeah, it just, you know, it was, I don't know. It just kind of came naturally. Hideki was like, was pretty easy to go along with. We, we, you know, when we were on the road, we would spend a lot more time together because you would uh, we'd eat breakfast or eat a late breakfast, you know, every, every day together on the road. And then, you know, you get up, you know, usually get up, you know, nine, 10 o'clock cause, and, and then eat breakfast, hang out at the hotel, maybe go do some shopping or whatever and or meet some other guys and, and 
and then you go to the ballpark around, you know, two, three o'clock, and then you're there till, you know, the game is over at 10 o'clock. By the time you get home, it's usually midnight, you know, so you're on like a different schedule than the rest of the world, but you end up spending a, a lot of time together. So it's important to, to be able to get along. And, um, uh, you know, we did, thankfully, and it made, made the whole experience go uh, uh, really smoothly. Cool. That's great, George. I was wondering if you can comment on what the Japanese players coming here did to integrate cultures between the U.S. and Japan, and how do you personally approach bringing the two cultures together? Sure, that's a good question. Um, it's, you know, when you, when you come here uh, from Japan, so I, I went through the experience when I was a teacher in Japan, and I lived in Fukushima, and I was only American in a town of about 35,000 people. And um, so I knew uh, how difficult it could be at first, right? And it's just really basic stuff, like not being able to speak to people because <laughs> you don't know the language. Uh, going to the supermarket and going to a Japanese supermarket for the first time when you can't really read what's on most of the packages and a lot of the food is food that you've never seen before. Um, you know, it's nice to get help from, uh, you know, some of the English teachers I taught with who would, would help me and showed me the ropes and, and things like that, you know. So, um, and of course, food is always actually a really big thing with Japanese baseball players because Japanese food is so unique, uh, you know, and, and it's really, uh, they, they, that's one thing that they always want to know is where they can, you know, get Japanese food. They're not ready to come over here and start eating you know, Big Macs and French fries and stuff like that. It's not, you know, part of the regular diet over there. Um, so I, I think for a lot of Japanese players too, it's kind of important to them in a way to, to be in, if they can, to be in a city where there's, you know, a Japanese community too, you know, like New York is an easy, pretty easy place for a Japanese person to live because there's a lot, there's a lot of Japanese expats here. There's a lot of Japanese restaurants. There's like a lot of people around, you know, as opposed to, um, uh, you know, Kansas city, which is a great city, but there's not a lot of Japanese people there and there's not as much Japanese food. So it's just not as easy, you know, it's not as familiar. So I think you see, you know, LA, uh, you know, Shohei Otani right now, he's out in Anaheim and orange County. There's big jet Japanese community out there. So, I think they try to, if they can, get, get, get into those those kind of cities, uh, if they can. Yeah, that and I guess I would add, Randy, it's, you know, and that's just the lifestyle part of it. Then there's the baseball part. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's, I think, uh, you know, Major League Baseball is, the Japanese leagues are very good, but it's still not the major leagues, mm -hmm. you know, and it's really hard it's really hard to be good in the major leagues and be successful. So that, you, you know, one, you have your uh, lifestyle and, and food and, and that, you know, living arrangements, that kind of stuff. And then you got to deal with, you know, 99 mile an hour fastballs and all that kind of stuff. And it's not easy because you don't see that in Japan the way you do here. <laughs> yeah, that would be impressive. I, I, and, and I remember when, you know, I've, I've been with Hideki Matsui in interviews and they'll people will ask him right you know writers will ask or at little baseball clinics that he puts on with kids at yankee stadium and whatnot and invariably people are like what was the hardest thing about coming to the major leagues and his answer is always 
everything. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, very good answer there. Um, So, uh, George, you have have a devotion to St. Maximilian Kolbe, and uh, and he was also a missionary to Japan, right? And uh, so how important was his consecration you did to him, um, you know, to Our Lady, uh, through him, um, giving your cultural experience and interaction in Japan? Sure. I would say, um, you know, my devotion to uh, St. Max didn't really come about, I mean, maybe through Japan, but not not consciously to me. But um, I guess uh, I, a number of years ago, I, I went on a, a retreat in Malvern, Pennsylvania. There's a uh, a layman's retreat. It's actually the largest uh, lay retreat house in the country. I think hmm. it's about 130 acres or so. It's oh. called St. Joseph's in the Hills in Malvern, Pennsylvania. And I'm actually going tomorrow uh, on the retreat. There's an annual retreat for the Knights of the Immaculata uh, for the Mid-Atlantic chapter. And it was founded by a bunch of great guys. And this about probably about 30, 35 years ago. And um and the retreat is always a high. I first went probably eight years ago on this retreat, and it's a full weekend. It's from a Friday to Sunday, and they always have phenomenal retreat masters. Uh, this this week weekend, uh, this retreat is going to be Jeff Cavins, who I'm sure you know, the biblical uh, mm-hmm. scholar and evangelist. So we'll get five talks from him over the weekend. Uh, we've been there. We've had um, in the past. Uh, Father Michael Gately has given a retreat. Um, you know, we've had a cardinal um, uh, give us you know, a retreat one weekend. So we've had just phenomenal retreat masters uh, over the years. And that's kind of when I first did that uh, consecration was on the retreat there. And so it's just basically about 300 guys are going to be on the retreat this weekend. And it's um, everybody has a devotion uh, you know, to Mary. And, um, and, and, you know, it's not really, it's not that heavy duty of a thing, really. It's kind of a, just a, uh, an association to be, have a devotion to the blessed mother, uh, and an awareness and, you know, St. Max founded it as we were talking about before the podcast started, was founded in 1917, uh, the Knights of the Immaculata and, you know, St. Maximilian Colby, like after St. Louis de Montfort, he was probably, you know, the the most devoted had the greatest devotion to Mary after St. Louis de Montfort, I would say of any of the saints. Um, well, maybe St. Joseph had the first, but, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so he founded it, uh, over a hundred years ago. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, that, that was the first time that I did about eight years or so ago. And, uh, you know, and then I learned a lot about St. Max over the years, St. Maximilian Colby and, what a remarkable uh, saint he was or a remarkable person. I mean, the, the life that he led um, and the people that he influenced was uh, incredible. Um, so that, that's kind of how my devotion started. Yeah, yeah what, a, what a powerful saint. So we'll, we'll pray for you and on your retreat and pray for us. <laughs> Sounds like an awesome experience. Will do. Yeah, you should oh, come yeah. out sometime. I know yeah. you guys are out on the West Coast, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I've, I've heard of that place. I think my sister went there for a retreat with Father Mike Gately also. So, Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. So, um, but yeah, that sounds great. Um, well, speaking of Japan and, um, 
there was a, a Marian apparition in Akita, and it sounds like you're also familiar with that. If you want to share a little bit what you know about that vision. Sure. So when I was uh, living in Tokyo and, and with, you know, running the Yankees uh, operations over, over there, um, you know, there's Our Lady of Akita. And that was an apparition that happened in the 1970s with, uh, to a nun, Sister Agnes. And um, it's in Akita, Japan, which is north of Tokyo, kind of northwest, a little, a little far. Uh, and when I was living there, a very close friend of mine, Father Jeff Kegley, who's pastor at um, uh, St. Mary's in Middletown, New Jersey. So he came over to visit me and my wife and my son and uh, spent a week with us in Tokyo, but we took a side trip on the weekend up to Akita. And, uh, <clears throat> and it was a great trip. Um, the, uh, there's a shrine there now to Our Lady of Akita. And it's basically, it's a, it, it's a Buddhist temple, uh, the structure, but it's a Catholic church and it's gorgeous. I mean, really beautiful building. And when you look at it, you don't realize it's a church until you see the crosses uh, on it on the outside. And so we spent, uh, we spent a weekend there. We went to the shrine. We were supposed to stay with the sisters in the convent, but there was a flu uh, in the convent that weekend. Mm. So we weren't able to, we had to stay in a hotel room away, but, but we did um, go to the shrine and there was a Filipino bishop and a, a pilgrimage, uh, a bunch of pilgrims from the Philippines and celebrating and the bishop was celebrating mass and we were able to uh, participate uh, with uh, with the bishop and there's a, a wooden uh, statue there of uh, of the Blessed Mother and when these apparitions were happening in the 70s the uh, the wooden statue cried uh, over a hundred different times a tear would come down from from her cheek uh, down her cheek from her eye uh, there was also blood in in the palms and they uh, uh, this miracle happened a bunch of times when people were praying in front of the statue and they had the, uh, the tears were sent to a Japanese university. And then also I think to a French university and they were analyzed uh, and they were human, they're human tears with salt um, in them and, and definitely of human origin coming from a wooden statue. And they did the same thing with the blood. And when they sent the blood away to be analyzed, it had all four blood types were, were in the blood. So it was pretty amazing. And, um, uh, and the, you know, if you ever get a chance, you can look up the, uh, the messages that sister Agnes got, there was a, a number of messages and they're, uh, they're kind of scary actually, when you listen to about fire coming down from the sky, if, you know, if we don't repent and things like that. Um, so it's, uh, but it's an approved apparition approved by the local uh, Bishop in, in Japan and, you know, and, and there's, not a lot of actually approved apparitions, even Medjugorje is not approved. Right. So um, it's, it's one of just, a, just really a few apparitions that have been approved by the local Bishop. Yeah. It's amazing. That's great. And it's interesting because Japan's not, and I think this is one of your other questions, Randy, it's not, it's not a Christian country. <laughs> you, you know, it's not a Catholic country. Um, it's Buddhist and Shinto and Shinto is the native Japanese religion. It's kind of like a, uh, a, a animist religion, like a American Indian religion, right? There's spirit in the trees and 
spirits everywhere. Um, and then Buddhism, as we know, is kind of more like a philosophy. But uh, I think Japan is less than, it's like 2% Christian or something like that. And um, and half of that is all the Filipino people that live in the country. <laughs> so it's not a lot. <laughs> so uh, I was going to say, I guess you're saying that the Catholic Church in Japan is is not is not very big. It's not. It's not. We were um, when we lived there. We were members of the Franciscan Chapel Center, which is in Tokyo. It's the largest English-speaking parish in Japan, and it's uh, Franciscan. Um, there is uh, in New York City. There's St. Francis of Assisi Parish on 31st street near Penn station. And that's the mother church. So the, the, the parish in Tokyo is kind of like a, uh, a mission church to that, to that one. Um, and especially in Northern Japan, there's not a lot of Catholics. So when the Jesuits landed in Japan, it was down there like Nagasaki and Hiroshima in that area it was South. So there's more Catholicism down in those areas uh, than there is North or, or even like in Tokyo. Wow. You said you said sanctifying grace is everything. And your grandfather said faith is a gift. How do you share that faith and grace in your life and in your family and in your work? Did I say that? <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> we thought so. We read it somewhere. Well, sanctifying grace is everything, right? Without that. Uh, you know, we, we're, what do we have, right? We, we can't earn it. So, um, and, and, uh, it's, it's a gift, uh, really. And my grandfather, who is an immigrant from Ireland, and he was a Thomist actually. Um, and, uh, he taught at Notre Dame for a little while after he got his PhD and in the 1940s, and then he taught at Queens college and his specialty was Thomism. And uh, every family party we used to be at when I was in high school and when I was younger, he used to pull me aside and say, Georgie, the, the faith itself is the gift. That is the gift, you know, mm -hmm. meaning just, you know, I think the fact that like the three of us guys are on this podcast talking, just the fact that we get it, you know, that we realize that the faith uh, is what we want and where we want to be and we want to live in God's grace that is the gift, you know, how many people don't uh, see it, you know, they don't, it's like if you could, uh, you know, put grace in a, in a bottle and, and, you know, put the lid on and give it to people, you would, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like lightning striking, you know, you sometimes you don't know where it's going to strike, but, um, but that's, yeah, and I always remember that, and, I, and to be honest, when my grandfather used to tell me that at the time, I was like, yeah, 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 okay, <laughs> yep, 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 you know, didn't really, you know, get it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It was later in life, you know, that those seeds that he planted in me uh, began to bear fruit and that I realized, you know, and that gives me a lot of hope, even with, with you know, my, my own people in my family or other people I'm speaking to. Uh, you know, you just never know when those seeds that you're planting or talking about are, are going to take root. I mean, they, they are taking root, but you never know when they're going to start to blossom. Right. Amen. Yeah.
You may yep. not see it because you get too big of a head. If you know, every time we open our mouth, oh, someone becomes more faithful. Or, but yeah, they may just take a while to to uh, bloom. Yeah, and life happens, right? And then we, yeah. we hit our bumps in the road, and you know, when you're difference between being 16 and 55, and uh, you know, all the experiences that you have, and you, you know, the suffering that we experience, and all that, and that's really right when you you come back to your faith. And it's like, I was very lucky. My parents sent me to Catholic school uh, when I was growing up, both high school, you know, grammar school, high school and college. And, um, and it's there, like when you, you know, I mean, and I really fell away from my faith in my twenties. Like when I went away to college is when I stopped going to church mm -hmm. and I really didn't go start going back until I was in my early thirties. So it was a long time where I just fell away and not that I didn't believe in God. I just, you know, it wasn't that important to me. You know, I, 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 uh, I wanted to be out and party and, and, you know, and, and do my own thing. And, and, uh, and, and that's what I did, you know, until I kind of hit bottom, honestly, when I was in my late twenties, you know, with alcohol and drugs mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I uh, got sober, I got sober in my late twenties. And then, and then I came back to church and I needed it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it all came flooding back when I did, <laughs> thankfully. Oh, amen. The Praise journey. God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, about suffering and um, you shared earlier that um, right now you're battling lung cancer. We had lost our co-podcaster, Jeff, to cancer earlier this year. And uh, you, in this journey, and uh, we rely on our faith. Thank you, parents and God, grandparents, for giving us this gift of faith. <laughs> um, you have a relationship with Blessed Michael Sapokcho? Yes. Sapokcho? Yeah. Yes. And you want to just share that journey and how that is going? Sure. Well, I was uh, diagnosed, I guess, about five years ago with uh, lung cancer. And um, you know, I was down at night. It, it could be from 9-11. I was down in 9-11 uh, when that happened, working on Wall Street and uh, you know, was in the, the big dust cloud uh, and kept working there for eight or nine months afterwards. So it's, it's a pretty good chance it could be from that. Um, but uh, blessed Father Michael Sapochko. So I have very good friends, Bob and Maureen Digan, who uh, are the miracle couple. Uh, I would I really recommend if you can do a Google search on them when we're done. So Maureen was the first verified miracle for Sister Faustina, uh, and she had a miraculous healing of her leg, and uh, the, her and, and Bob, uh, their son, also had a miraculous healing. He was born with cerebral palsy and, and a lot of uh, physical uh, issues, and Bob is a deacon in the church. Great man, really great wow. man, very uh, strong conviction. This is back in 1981. Uh, that he needed to take his wife and his son to Poland. Um, uh, and there was going to be a miracle of healing. And because Maureen, I think had she had had one leg amputated in high school and with due to Milroy's disease, which is where your it, uh, her leg became very hard, almost like wood. And her second leg was in danger of having to be amputated. And so he was convicted that he needed to take them to Poland and there would be a miraculous healing. And to make a long story short, he did. And at a time it wasn't easy to get your family to Poland, communist Poland. Right. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. uh, and took them to Krakow to 
uh, where Sister Faustina was buried, where the, now today is the, the Divine Mercy Sanctuary is. And, uh, and, and the miraculous healing happened. It was verified. And, you know, later it was a second mirror. Obviously, Sister Faustina was, was uh, uh, canonized. She was the saint of the new millennium. She was the first saint in, it was April of 2011 that Pope John Paul II uh, canonized her. And, and uh, so I've actually have had a great devotion as well to Sister Faustina and to the Divine Mercy, you know, and uh, Paul, I see your, your picture there, uh, and, you know, Jesus, I trust in you. Um, that, that is the, that is the message, you know, when, when I went on the Knights of the Immaculata Retreat with Father Michael Gately some years ago, it was all about Poland and Divine Mercy and how that is the message for our times, right? And I mean, there's no more important message really than uh, people understanding uh, that God is all about mercy, you know, and wants to bring them back home. And Jesus, I trust in you. And that's the big lie that Satan tell, tries to tell people that God doesn't have their best interests at heart, right? And that they think God is against them and, and nothing could be further than truth. And um, so I had this great friendship with Bob and Maureen and they came and spoke at our parish and I learned about her miracle and all that. So when they found out I had lung cancer, um, they, they said, you know, George, you should start, you should pick a saint to start praying to for a, a healing. And actually, it'd be better for you to pick somebody who's not a saint already. So, <laughs> and, you know, so that maybe your healing could contribute to their, you know, uh, becoming a saint. And he said, and if you haven't heard of him, Blessed Father Michael Sapochko, he's blessed. So there's been one miracle. He needs another. And he was Sister Faustina's spiritual advisor. So oh, wow. Father Michael Sapochko was actually was the priest when he was assigned to the convent where Sister Faustina was. Um, he became her confessor and she was already having these visions and with Jesus and conversations with Jesus. And uh, she would bring them into the confession, confessional booth and start talking about them. But they were, you know, the confession would end up being really long and he, it's hard to digest all that. Right. So he, he suggested to her, why don't you start writing this stuff down and then we can start talking about it. So he's really the guy who gave her the, the idea of the, the diary, Divine Mercy in My Soul, oh, was wow. thanks to Father Sapochko suggesting to her that, that she write that. And Jesus told Sister Faustina um, in some of the visions and conversations that he's a priest after my own heart. I want you to do, do anything he tells you to do. And basically, she had great obedience uh, to him. And he was a phenomenal priest. And... Um, and he helped put the diary together and, and organize it. And eventually Father um, uh, Seraphim, I think it was, with the, uh, you know, they smuggled it out of uh, Poland. And it, uh, eventually it was approved by the Vatican and then became what we know it is today. But uh, so my when I got lung cancer, I wrote, I wrote a letter uh, just asking people to pray for, you know, explaining my situation and and a little bit about divine mercy and how much it, it means to me and to my family and asking people to pray to blessed uh, Father Michael Sapochko for uh, for a miraculous healing. Uh, and so that's kind of how that devotion came about. And I was very lucky uh, about, I guess, about three and a half years ago, uh, I took a pilgrimage to Poland 
with Father Kegley, who I mentioned earlier, and about 25 other uh, people from our parish. And, and we went to Poland for eight days and we visited, uh, uh, we visited the uh, sanctuary in uh, Bialystok, where Father Sapochko is buried. Uh, his tomb is there and, and everybody prayed, uh, our whole pilgrimage group prayed over me uh, when, we were, when we were there. And, uh, and then we made our way to Krakow to Sister Faustina's uh, tomb as well. And we were, we were in Krakow at the Divine Mercy Sanctuary on Divine Mercy Sunday in oh, Poland. Wow. It was amazing. Wow. It was the trip of a lifetime. And oh, by the way, in between those two cities, we stopped at Auschwitz as well. And we went to, uh, we saw uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe's tomb, uh, or not tomb, but the, um, you know, the prison cell where he was martyred uh, at Auschwitz. So it was the trip of a lifetime. I mean, just giants, you know, these giants of, of saints from Poland. It's amazing uh, the people that uh, that Poland has produced, you know, in the last century. Yeah. They're all like kind of close, right? Look in the Poland, you can just get there like in the pilgrimage very quickly. Yeah. Well, sister, you know, and, and St. Maximum Colby and Sister Faustina were contemporary and, and Father Michael Spoch were contemporaries. Oh, wow. Right. So, and actually, so St. Maximum Colby was older than uh, Sister Faustina because I think he was born in 1894. I think she was, I want to say like 19, she died when she was 31 I believe, or 33. Mm -hmm. And um, she died in 1939, right before the Nazis invaded Poland. So she was born like 1906. So maybe 10 years or so after, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and it's arguable that without Maximilian Kolbe, uh, because he did so much to promulgate the Catholic faith throughout Poland, right. With, with the Knights of Immaculata and the newsletters that he put out. And it said that, Every home in Poland had that monthly newsletter that, hmm. that the, the Franciscans put out, thanks to Maximilian Kolbe. And he really, you know, drove the faith uh, throughout throughout the whole country that, you know, without Max, Maximilian Kolbe, there may not be a Sister Faustina. There may not mm. be a Pope John Paul II, right? Mm, yeah. He preceded them all. Um, so it's, it's really, the history of Poland is incredible. And... Uh, St. Maximum Kolbe is like right at the center of it all too. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah. What a powerful bunch of powerful saints over there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and George, if you had to say anything to anyone out there who's listening, who's going through what you're going through, what would you like to say to them to help encourage them on their journey? Well, Jesus, I trust in you, right? There's really not, not, um, much more than that than we can do. And, um, uh, you know, that's kind of like, uh, you know, for honestly, for with this uh, health issue, it's 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 one day at a time. And in some ways, I would say that cancer as well, in particular, it's um, it, it's, you know, of course, you don't want to get cancer, but it's also so many good things come out of it, too. Right. I mean, can't one thing about cancer is it gives you the gift of time. So um, it's not like you die all of a sudden in a car accident and you didn't get the chance to say goodbye to people or, or say the things that you wanted to say to people. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really a blessing in some ways, if that's the way you're going to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> and as they say, nobody gets out of here alive. Right. <laughs> right. Right. None of us get out of here alive. So um, I, I don't want to, I certainly don't want to die and I don't want to go early. Uh, but um 
you know, having kind of, you know, something like this happen to you. So it's a little bit of a wake up call and it kind of makes you appreciate a little bit more things that are important in life. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not all bad. That's what I would say. Okay. One day at a time. And Jesus, I trust in you. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Powerful. Yeah. Wow. Well, George, thanks again for coming on. The thank you so much show today this is awesome thank you for oh, sharing thank all that you guys bless you guys for doing this show it's awesome i can't wait to uh to hear it later on the catholic sportsman show we didn't talk about sports too much i guess but <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the important thing though we did jesus. yes we did yeah jesus i trust in you yeah jesus <laughs> yeah. i trust in you yeah, yeah. <laughs> just do a show on that for sure <laughs> Well, Randy, you want to close us out in prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Lord, we just thank you for this time together, and we, we ask your blessing on George and his healing. We thank you for his witness today, and we ask that he and our Catholic sportsmen shall be a witness to all of our listeners. We ask the intercession of the the Blessed Virgin Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thanks again, George. Have a great retreat. We'll pray for you. Thank you, George, so much. Thanks, guys. And I will keep you in prayer and the Catholic Sportsman podcast in prayer over the weekend as well. Thank you so much. All right, great. So nice to see you guys.